Nehemiah 3 tells us the story of the building of the walls of Jerusalem. This is part two of a message on the gates of Jerusalem. Hope you'll enjoy this. I'm Gene Brooks. This is Voices Along the Way. So turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 3, and we're going to look at the gates of Jerusalem. In today's um, chapter, Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall with the people. And his primary purpose in writing Nehemiah 3 was to document for all time, for the Jews and for history, the official names of those who were doing the work at specific areas and the accomplishments that they made on the wall as they built it. And so you see different colors here on the map of the different sections that uh, people all gathered around and did. Now, without straining the text too much or going too far into to allegory, we can glean from this chapter some spiritual illustrations that will encourage us in our Christian lives and in the ministries that God's given us. So there are 10 gates mentioned in chapter 3, but there are 12 gates around the city. And we're going to look at all 12 of those gates, but the last six today. So Nehemiah is under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and he's writing and he's detailing the rebuilding of the 12 gates around uh, Jerusalem. And, and this pictures the important aspects of the life of believers. And, and we also should note in passing that there are 12 gates. Uh, uh, this is a shadow of the 12 gates of the New Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21. And so in, in many ways, these gates portray not only for us various aspects of our lives as believers and the work of Christ in our lives, but also portrays the end time work and the eternal work of Jesus Christ as he, as he works in our lives. Now, Nehemiah gets everyone to work on the walls. And, and so in the same way in a local church, Having a common sense of purpose is important for us, for us to get a job accomplished in the kingdom. And that sense of common purpose will unite us, even though we may have different opinions about other things. When we are focused together on one project or one uh, purpose, God uses us. And Nehemiah assigned teams to work on the wall and to work as close to their homes as possible so that they had a real personal interest in making sure that the wall that they built was strong, that it was done well, so that it would defend their homes and their businesses if uh, it was attacked. Now, it's not wrong to encourage people in their personal interest in God's work. The kingdom is built on relationships, and as we build relationships, we share with one another the blessings that we have. So, this is an example of helping the people we know and also helping uh, a, in a common purpose for everyone. This is a beautiful picture of that where there is a win-win. Everybody wins in this. And so Nehemiah also organized the work groups according to their neighborhood or he chose uh, by their profession or by their family, even by their social status. Um, so we, we shouldn't be afraid 
of diversity in our churches. When we have uh, different, God brings different people to our, to our local churches. He does that for a purpose. He has various gifts and talents that you have. And you're here. <coughs> Excuse me. God brought you here because you have specific gifts and talents that he wants you to contribute to this church and this local place. So if, if God's brought you here and you're here, you feel called to that this is even mildly you feel maybe this is your place. I mean, for me, I didn't really know if it was my place or not. I didn't know if it was my family's place. <clears throat> but it took a few brothers in Christ to set me in my place and say, this is what you need to be doing. And, and as I was riding uh, over here this morning thinking about that, uh, I was thinking, you know, um, there are a lot of churches we can go to. I, I could go to a different church every week just in eco and never visit all of them before I finish this next term. <coughs> and in all of our churches, no matter the denomination, what we're finding is it takes work to teach the Word of God. And a lot of, sadly, a lot of ministers are not willing to do that work. Or they don't have time to do that work because they're trying to work two other jobs to provide for their family so that they can come pastor the church. And so the, we need to really strive for strong biblical teaching in our churches. Now, also in passing, I just want to mention to you the very first word of the chapter I mentioned last week. I think it's important. Elisha, Elisha the priest. His name means God restores and over this whole book is restoration. And over this wall is restoration. And over this people is restoration. And, and so this, this messianic picture right off the bat, where Nehemiah is this uh, picture and a shadow of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is to come, who is our restoration. He rebuilds our lives. He restores our lives. He restores our societies. He rebuilds our cultures and our nations to his glory. And... And we're thankful for that. So if we go quickly through the first six gates and, and uh, review this morning, we want to remind ourselves, first of all, that they began work on the sheep gate. They began and they ended at the sheep gate because Christ our Lamb is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. It's through, it's, we enter the this, this city of God through the sheep gate. It's through the Lamb's sacrifice that we find our way in. And it's the only way in. Of all the gates they could have started with, Nehemiah started with the sheep gate. And so I think it's significant that he did. The second gate was a fish gate. And the fish gate, verses 3 through 5, tells us we're called to be fishers of men. First and foremost, we're called to be people who will tell others and take the Great Commission and take it not only across the street, but we'll take it to the ends of the earth. And then the third gate that they that they were, that is mentioned here is the old gate verses six through eight the yeshana gate or the old gate and ironically the old gate entered uh was the gate that entered to the new area of building that was taking place called, called the new quarter and in the and so the old gate entered to the new quarter and so it's a picture of god's word uh augustine the great north african theologian said the old is in the new contained, the new is in the old explained. 
And so here we have the, the word of God is our guide. The, thir- the fourth gate is the Ephraim gate. Ephraim means fruitfulness. We're called through entering through the Lamb and being guided by God's word to bear fruit. And Jesus tells us in John 15 that we are to bear fruit, fruit that will last. And, if, and apart from him, we can do nothing. So we are called to bear fruit. The next gate that they worked on was the valley gate. That's verse 13. And that, the valley gate teaches us that we need humility and grace because God takes all of us through valleys. Sometimes we think if we're going through a hard time that, that, that we automatically blame the devil. Uh, we, sometimes we go through a hard time because it's our fault. We, we made decisions that brought us into a hard time. Sometimes the devil will take us into a hard time and, we'll, and, and we will find so many strange things happening that the only explanation could be that something spiritual is, a, is attacking. Uh, and that, that does occur. But there are also times when God will bring you into a time of uh, valley in your life. He brings us into those valleys on purpose. He brings us into those valleys not to harm us, not to hurt us. He's not that kind of a God. He brings us into those valleys to teach us grace and to teach us His grace and humility to learn. Usually, those of us who are going through a valley are having our pride broken in one way or another. Like the jar of spikenard in John chapter 13. It had to be broken for the perfume to fill the house. And sometimes in our lives... Uh, we will find that our, ourselves, that, that until we are broken, God, thank you so much for that water. The, until we are broken, the, the, the perfume that God has put in our lives cannot be uh, shared with anyone else. And it can't be used for his glory. And so we need that humility and grace. The sixth gate is the dung gate. That's verses 14 and also uh, verse 12, verse 30. We need daily cleansing from sin. And it was the dung gate where they carried out the, the garbage from the city. Uh, and this was the place where uh, they would uh, make sure that the city was cleansed. And so daily clean, we need daily cleansing from sin. And so those are, those are the things that from the first six gates... Now, I want us to look now at the seventh gate. And the seventh gate is verses th- chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Read with me. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalun, the son of Colhose, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam by the king's garden as far as the steps going down from the city of David. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Abzuk, that's a different Nehemiah, ruled of a, ruler of a half-district of Bethzur, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and the house of the heroes. The fountain gate teaches us in our Christian life that we need the Holy Spirit's empowerment in our lives. The fountain gate was in the area... Uh, called the Ophel, uh, the part of the eastern wall that sits between the city of David, where David had built his palace, and the Temple Mount up on the north side. Oh, thank you so much for that. And so, so you have 
This area is the city of David. This is where David built his palace, and this area is where you think the palace was. Um, we'll talk more about that in two seconds. And then up here is the Temple Mount. Uh, you see uh, where Herod uh, used Roman tax money to build that wall around, and then the Saracens, the Muslims, helped repair it during the Crusades. But the Temple Mount is up there. Uh, the, um, the mosque, the Dome of the Rock, is in the place generally of the temple. And so we see that the, that the fountain gate then was located somewhere, we think, along here. So if they had come out, they've come out on the north side, they've come all the way around, and Nehemiah has taken us on these six gates, and now we're starting back uh, up this way. Thank you. So then we're starting back and going back around, and here's the fountain gate. So they've come around the dome gate. They came out here at the sheep gate, and he's explaining all this, and now we're headed back toward the temple mount. Does that make sense? All right. So the pool just across from there is the Pool of Siloam. Uh, in this area is the Pool of Siloam and the Gihon Spring Fountain and the, uh, the, the uh, what's the brook? Uh, the brook? Kidron's uh, on this side. What's this one called? I can't remember. But anyway, that brook, they, this is where Hezekiah dug the tunnel so that it converted the water, diverted the water into the city during the siege by the Assyrians and was able to use the pool of Siloam to have water for the city so they could live out, they could handle any siege that was sent against them. Am I right about that? It's the Gihon, okay, it's the Gihon Spring that went under the pool of Siloam is where Jesus healed a blind man, right? Um, and um, it was it a blind man? Yeah, told a blind man to go wash the mud out of his eyes in John 9, verse 7, right? And so, so the water system is there. So there at the fountain gate, it's a picture of the fountain. And the Bible, water fountains are a picture of the Holy Spirit. We see that in Jeremiah 2, verse 13. This gate speaks of the overflowing life of the believer. The rivers of living water made possible by the Holy Spirit. It's not... Probably not a mistake or an accident that in this general area is where Jesus stood in John chapter 7 verses 37 to 39. And he stood, it says he stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But he spoke this concerning the spirit, according to the apostle John. Only the Holy Spirit can empower your life. You can't do it. Your mama can't do it. Your daddy can't, his money can't do it for you. The only empowerment that you can find is through the Holy Spirit. The otherwise, you will grind yourself down to nothing. Because if you operate in the flesh and in carnality, you will never make it. You will, you will exhaust yourself because your resources are not enough. But the Holy Spirit can empower the Christian life. Jesus commands us in John 7 here to come and drink. And that command is in the present tense. And in that original language, that tense means it's called present continual. You, you need to come and drink. And you need to come back and drink. And you need to come over and over and over and over to this fountain and drink. It's not one and done. It's come continually because it's... He wants us to drink continually from His unlimited source. 
And we see actually a fountain in Revelation 21 in the New Jerusalem. And it's an unlimited source of spring of living water. For John 15, 7 says, without him we can do nothing. So spiritually think speaking, we have moved from the valley gate of humility to the dung gate of cleansing to the fountain gate of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that the way the Lord works? We find ourselves in a hard place and we come to the Lord in confession of our sin or uh, and repentance or we sometimes we need to forgive someone. When we come to that place where we put our pride to the side and, and we renounce our own pride and then we turn to the Lord and we confess, repent, and forgive. And then the, there at the dung gate we leave all the garbage behind and then we can move into the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now I want to just uh, uh, mention something here because of two things that are mentioned in this particular verse. One important place we see Christ in the book of Nehemiah is in the restoration of the wall. How is that? Nehemiah restored the walls of Jerusalem and in the process restored the morale and the morals of his people. And the Lord Jesus Christ will be the one who will come and restore the nation of Israel one day. Our missionary God promises this. I will shake the nations and the desire, that's the Messiah, the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord. The prophet Haggai said 2 verse 7. Not only were Jerusalem's temple and the walls restored, but Israel itself experienced a rebirth in 1948. And she awaits her Messiah. Even if many of them are not looking for him right now, they are awaiting the Lord Jesus Christ to return. And Nehemiah's theme is that the God of heaven will prosper us and therefore we his servants will arise and build. Chapter 2 verse 20. That leads us straight into three, chapter 3. So the entire book presents as a type two events of the last days. First, the restoration of the, of the civil government of the Jews in the land. And, and that has occurred uh, over 70 years ago. And the second thing is Israel's national supremacy during the millennium, which is still to come. So these two things. Now... In 2007, Dr. Eliot Mazar, an archaeologist, was commissioned to dismantle and restore a tower in the city of David, which was thought to be of the Hasmonean area. The Hasmonean area will be just prior to when the Romans took over. The tower and the associated wall were in danger of collapse because they were poorly built. And the area of the section of the wall assigned... Uh, by uh, the governor Nehemiah to this group of people was to a different Nehemiah, chapter 3, verse 16. And after they took down the tower, they found the wall and the tower were built on a foundation that dated from the time of David, King David. And it fits the area of the city that would have been, they thought, where David's palace might have been. And under the foundation, Dr. Eliot Mazar, who just, he passed away maybe two months ago, found two dog burials, two dogs buried there. A sure sign of the Persian period. Because 
that was a time that they, the Persians attributed some type of spiritual value to dogs. And so instead of just throwing the dog on the trash pile at the dung gate, they buried the dog ceremonially at the foundation as a ceremony before they did the building. So two dogs were buried there. There was only a hundred year period where that could have happened. And so it falls right in the time of Nehemiah. There, you can't go outside of this hundred years, and so it falls within that time of Nehemiah. There were no, <clears throat> there were no um, bulla, which are seals, uh, that said Yehud, uh, a sign that the wall predated the time of the uh, Judean uh, sovereignty around 333. So this... So what I'm saying is it puts us closer into Nehemiah's time. At a lower Babylonian level, down deeper, they found a shiny black stone seal from Babylon inscribed Shelomith, a daughter of Zerubbabel. First, first mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 19. Below that, there was a thick destruction layer of where something had, the city had been burned. Many bronze and arrow, bronze and iron arrowheads were found in the destruction level, which tells you that there was a battle, that there was fighting, and it was burned, right? And then they also found a seal, a bulla, of the biblical prince Gedaliah, son of Pashur, mentioned in the scripture. I don't have the reference here for some reason, but he's mentioned there. One final note. And Nehemiah 3.16 says that the tombs of the kings of Judah are situated along a massive stepped structure at the end of the section of wall. You see it there in verse 16 in your Bible. It was built by Nehemiah son of Abzu, this different Nehemiah. These tombs of the kings have not yet been found. But one of these days they probably will be found and... When and if they do, they will fulfill an end-time prophecy that Jeremiah 8, verses 1 and 2 gives. So here you see, this is the stepstone structure mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 16. They uncovered it. Could you zoom out and let me see the full picture? I think that the first picture was the farther away. Is it or is this the first one? Okay, yeah. You see, this is the ground. And you see where they had to dig down? And they cut these... Um, these squares where they could document everything and they found this step stone structure. Go ahead to the next one. And so here's the, as a close-up of those step stones. And the next picture shows you um, those step stones are here and here's the wall. What's interesting about this is the tower that they built. This tower was the thing that they had to they had to undo study it and build it back. That was, that was their job, Mazar's job. And so I think it's pretty funny that they had to take down a tower that was not well built. Why does that strengthen your confidence in the inerrancy of Scripture? Because Nehemiah had people building a wall who didn't have any business putting block together. When you got gold makers and priests and, and shopkeepers trying to build a wall for a city, it's not going to be high quality. And so this one, what was about to fall, 
was this gives us more confidence that this was built by Nehemiah's people because it was not built well. It was about to fall. It stood for a long time, but it, but it was. Uh, so this is a beautiful picture and should strengthen your confidence in the inerrancy of Scripture. The eighth city, the eighth gate is the gate of the guard. Mention chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 17 to 25. Now the gate of the guard is not mentioned in these verses, but this is the area where the gate of the guard was found. It's mentioned in 2 Chronicles chapter 23, verse 19, so we know it's in this particular area. So the gate of the guard teaches us that we are kingdom priests. We, are the, we believe in the priesthood of all the body of believers. And each person who is a believer in Jesus Christ is a kingdom priest. So from the fountain gate, the priests led by, again, Eliashib, the high priest, and the priests repaired the wall sections. This is the second section that they worked on. The sections attached to their homes until they reached the gate of the guard near the high priest's home, mentioned in 2 Chronicles chapter 23, verse 19. Like the Ephraim gate, this gate did not need repaired. Why would they leave it out? Well, because it didn't need repair. God's work to build us as kingdom priests is His work, not ours. We don't repair it. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves kingdom priests. And just the same way with the Ephraim gate. We can't be fruitful on our own. Without me, you can do nothing, John 15, 7. But, we, but because that, those gates didn't need repaired, so they're not mentioned here, but they were building all around these gates. So... Listen to this. The, if you take the meanings of the names of the Levites who repaired the wall to the high priest's house. Now, I have not plumbed the depths of this. I don't understand all of this. But there's something here that we need to pay attention to and ask the Holy Spirit to teach us on. And somebody somewhere has got some insight on this. I just hadn't found the right commentary, I think. The meanings of the names of the Levites who repaired the wall to the high priest's house mean... Merciful and compassionate to the one whom God sees building the little city. And it was a little city. They were reduced. They had taken the walls and they had, they had just abandoned large sections of the city and brought it down to a very small, uh, much smaller than it was before. The meetings continue. With the desire of the Lord, the grace of the beloved, help and salvation are a witness between the two. Now, I'm just taking the meanings of their names and stringing them in order. You think, well, this is kind of crazy. Can you really do this? Is that really a good interpretation of Scripture? I'm not sure if it is or not. But I can tell you this, that when the Hebrews listen to the names that were being read, as, it, as this passage of Scripture is being read in the synagogue, they were hearing the meanings of all these names because these are Hebrew words that have meanings. And so they are listening to something that is, pro that is, giving, is prophetic of something to come. The next one, the pure blessing my God will restore from bitterness the myrrh through the myrrh of death to the light of the Lord. Now, myrrh, is a sure picture of the, of the uh, burial of Jesus Christ, right? And so these are, these are incredible 
uh, things there that I don't know exactly what to do with it, but I'm saying there's something here. The priests from the plains who continued the prayers, the repairs from the priest's house, the high priest's house to the courtyard of the guard, the meanings of those things are this. Consider the son of the right hand, the Lord's helper, and the work of the Lord, the cloud or the glory of the Lord, and the building up of the grace of the beloved. Now, I got to tell you, I come to this really skeptical, but after seeing this happen five, six times in a row, I'm beginning to wonder, is there something I'm missing here? Because remember, when we go to Scripture, we don't put ourselves in authority over it. We put ourselves in authority under it. And so if there's something I don't understand in the Scripture, the Scripture's not the problem. I'm the problem. And I need to be taught. And I need to learn. The area of the gate of the guard is described in the Millennial Temple of Messiah in Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 6 through 7. This gate didn't need any repairs because he himself calls us and makes us priests after this new order of the priesthood of all believers. It's his work, and it points to Messiah's kingdom, which needs no repair, right? The next gate is the water gate. The water gate is found in 26 and 27. The temple servants living on the hill of Ophel made repairs up to a point opposite the water gate toward the east and the projecting tower. Next to them, the men of Tekoa repaired another section from the great projecting tower to the wall of Ophel. Now this is the area where Jeremiah was imprisoned uh, several times. Jeremiah 32, 33, and 38. The, the, um, the water gate gives us the picture that we are washed in the word. The water gate led from the old city of David to the Gihon Spring, located adjacent to the Kidron Valley. And it was at the water gate that Ezra and the priests conducted a great Bible conference in Nehemiah chapter 8 that we're going to get to in a few weeks. And they explained the scriptures to the people. Now when they explained the scriptures to the people, conviction fell on them and revival broke out. This gate also did not need repair. Why? It's a picture of the Word of God and the washing by the Word. This gate is seen by Ezekiel in the Millennial Temple in Ezekiel 47 verse 2 and 3 with water trickling out of the gate. And if the fountain gate reminds us of the Spirit of God, the water gate reminds us of the washing of the Word of God. Water is a type of the Word of God. His Word never needs repair for it's pure it's refreshing, it's enduring, and the Word of God stands forever and it won't fail. Amen. Psalm 119.89, Forever, O Lord, your Word is settled in heaven. The Bible does not need to be repaired or improved because it doesn't have any errors to begin with. The next gate is the horse gate. The horse gate we find in verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house, and so here we see that horse gate. Now the horse gate stood north of the water gate, adjacent to the temple area, near the king's stables. And it was the gate used by the cavalry to come in and out. The horse, in scripture, is often associated with war. Jeremiah 31, 40 being an example of that. Now, though God warned his people not to trust in horses and chariots, 
Solomon imported them from Egypt as an important part of Israel's defense system when he was king. So it's significant that this gate, like the sheep gate, was near the temple and that the priests repaired both of them. The priests offered sacrifices and were their spiritual warriors through prayer. The horse gate reminds us that the Christian life is one of continual warfare and that we must always be ready and disciplined. Second Timothy chapter, first Timothy, first Timothy chapter 2, right? Or uh, I'm not sure my reference is right. Second Timothy chapter 2. You must, there, you, yes, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself in the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Now God provided sufficient equipment for us through prayer and the word of God and the armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18. And the meaning of the names of those who worked on the wall around the horse gate is this. A righteous lamb speaks. Are you relying on the Lord in prayer? Do you use the word of God as your sword? If you want to be victorious and understand, you need to understand that you're at war. And you need to understand that we have uh, to do battle on this side. Then the, light, the 11th gate is the east gate. Verses 29 and 30. Next to them, Zadok, son of Emmer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard at the east gate, made repairs. And then we come to verse 30. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. So they're all building close to home. The eastern gate was part of the eastern wall, and it had an entrance directly to the temple area and the courts behind it. Ahead of it is going to be the Mount of Olives. Uh, we believe that uh, it's believed that Jesus used this gate to ride into Jerusalem on the donkey on Palm Sunday. However, the actual east gate of Nehemiah is today underground. It has not been excavated. The uh, eastern or the golden gate faces the Mount of Olives. The names associated with the repair of the eastern gate mean he who hears or obeys the Lord, the divine presence consoles. Grace and mercy are a gift of the Lord. God is my perfection, gracious and merciful. A human paid for friends. Yahweh blesses. Something there, guys. Ezekiel says this was the gate through which the Shekinah glory, the Lord's presence, departed from Israel um, in Ezekiel chapter 10. One day when that glory returns, it's going to come back from the east, Ezekiel 43 tells us. Now both Jewish and Christian con tradition connect the golden gate with the coming of the Messiah to Jerusalem. And says that Jesus entered the temple on Palm Sunday through this gate. Therefore, in the 16th century, the Turkish Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent sealed the Golden Gate with blocks of stone to prevent Jesus from ever coming back through that gate. So we have every reason to associate this gate with the coming of the Lord. Jews, Christians, and Muslims all see it as the, come, as the gate of the coming of the Lord. So this gate reminds us of something very important, guys. Jesus Christ is coming back. 
He will return. And we need to be ready. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And when He comes again, His feet are going to stand on the Mount of Olives, according to Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. Are you looking for Christ's return? Will you be confident on the day of He returns? Or will you be ashamed? That depends on your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you have one or not. Are you abiding in Him? The twelfth gate is the inspection gate. The inspection gate is in verse 31. Next to him, Melchizedek, one of the golden goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate and as far as the room above the corner. And then verse 32 ends with the sheep gate. But the inspection gate tells us he will review and reward us. This, this gate is also called the Hamithkad gate. Ha being meaning the and Mithkad. The, the gate is, uh, Mithkad means the appointed place. This gate is also called the muster gate, located at the northeast corner of the city. The word for inspection is found only in three other passages. Mithkad, 2 Samuel 24, 9 and 1 Chronicles 21, 5, where it means the numbering or the mustering. And in Ezekiel 43, 21, it means the appointed place for the sin offering to be burned. The Mithkad also has a military connotation referring to the mustering of troops for the numbering and the inspection of the place of judgment. Here is the spot where King David inspected his troops before heading into battle. And it's most likely the gate where King Hezekiah mustered his military commanders to remind them that the Lord fights Israel's battles in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. The elders sat at this gate and judged and rendered decisions in matters brought before them. This is the gate of inspection, the gate of judgment. The meaning of the name of the goldsmith who worked at this gate is Yahweh is king. Now the muster or the inspection gate can pertain to the judgment seat of Christ. Or it can also com, com, uh, be compared to the review and the judgment that we will have as believers when our Lord returns. The scripture tells us in, that when the Lord returns, he will gather his people together and review their works in preparation for giving out rewards for faithful service. We see that in Romans and also, to, in regard to the judgment, the nations will be summoned to judgment in the valley of Megiddo, according to Joel chapter 3 and Isaiah 66. Although believers cannot lose their salvation, we can't lose that salvation. We can lose our reward. And so this will, re will result in grief and shame for some of us, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. You will receive a reward for faithful service. If you have served him faithfully at Christ's judgment, he will judge all our works. First Corinthians chapter 3 tells us, verses 12 to 15. So we will be reviewed in the end. We will, every, every idle word, Paul says, will be judged. And so we have here before us the gates of Jerusalem, which are a picture of our Christian life. Let's close in prayer. I hope you enjoyed this message on part two of the 
gates of Jerusalem from Nehemiah chapter 3. This is Voices of Along the Way. I'm Gene Brooks. 